0: Welcome to our second season of Spirits Discussions. I'm Lachlan Watt and I have over 10 years experience in both the spirits and bar industries, while also having an insatiable thirst for understanding the booze that we drink. Through this series, we will dive deeper into the topics that we have grazed in season one and dive into some other historical tidbits that have guided our drinking habits. Join me through our second season and well, let's get started. Welcome everyone and welcome to our second season of Spiritual Discussions. What is a better way to start off the new year than with an episode on bubbly wine? Something that my guest and I today are very excited about and a very great way to start off this, this fantastic year it can only be better than the last. Wiramu Andrews, welcome. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. Happy New Year, everybody. Now... Let's start off by getting some of your time, a story about your time in this industry. What brought you to wine?
1: Sure. Well, uh, uh, hospitality brought me in contact with wine for, I guess, professionally for the first time. Um, I'm from New Zealand and I worked uh, in an Italian restaurant, fine dining place called Toto. Yeah. And um, up until then, wine was kind of just something that I worked with, but uh, I tried incredible wines from Italy and um, that really changed the way I saw wine. Um, it kind of mattered where it was from and how it was made and before that it was kind of just a product that I was pouring out into people's glasses so that was what got things started and I um, I moved to Melbourne in 2006 and I mean Melbourne and restaurant scene is it was just <laughs> it, it was it was bound to happen and so I really fell in love with wine and fell in love with Victoria as a region traveled extensively um, early on and mostly to wine regions and it's a good way to get to know the area and the history and Yeah, just kind of kept doing the wine thing.
0: Well, like you said, Victoria is a fantastic place to grow wine, especially some fantastic bubbly wines coming out of this state as well for our topic today. Um, Absolutely. But Australia makes fantastic wine anyway.
1: Yeah, all over. like, the wines were incredible and, uh, you know, it made me realise there was such a diversity in style um, just in Victoria, let alone the rest of Australia. So it was a really kind of good kind of – kind of start for me to really um, increase my world of wine and you know understanding wines from around the world but really getting to grips with a place that I was living in that was surrounded by wine regions
0: yeah and you mentioned before that you know wine is is a sense of place you know it is uh, that to use the term terroir you know where mm-hmm. it, it's from the earth you know it's taking something from the earth it's something that a plant does yes and so Grapes are a perfect, uh, I guess, vessel for, for that sense of place.
1: Yeah, definitely. And um, it was interesting because when I was a child, uh, my mother worked in a kiwi fruit orchard um, in the Bay of Plenty because that's um, the kiwi fruit capital of the world. <laughs> and it was interesting that, uh, you know, I kind of hated being there a lot when I was growing up. But, yeah. Um, found myself walking through rows and rows of vineyards and yeah, it's kind of funny how life throws those things at
0: you and it is yeah. yeah brings us all back to something that we grew up with or
1: absolutely and today I um yeah look I worked as a sommelier for many years in, in, in Melbourne and 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 in other parts of the world I did the whole Europe thing for a while and yep. um, came back and now I'm kind of more more on the distribution side and a bit more hospitality adjacent. um, But I'm also um, involved in a winery in Beechworth and we've just taken over a vineyard there and so I find myself on my knees and staking (laughs) vineyards and just really getting my hands dirty. So just getting closer to that kind of four-year-old boy that was running through uh, Kiri Fruit Orchards.
0: Well, I mean, it takes you back to that sense of place as always. You know, as long as you've had that sense of ownership, create something really, really romantic and beautiful, which is... I mean, what we're celebrating today with, you know, the new year and celebrating life going forward.
1: Absolutely, and uh, yeah, sparkling's always been dear to me. And even as a young drinker, uh, when I was sixteen or seventeen, probably some of my early drinking um, happened uh, with some sparkling wine. Uh, there was uh, Montana uh, produced a wine called Bernardino Spumante, yeah, uh, which was a New Zealand wine from mostly from Gisborne, actually made from musket it's like kind of like a semi-sweet sparkling wine, but um, for those New Zealand listeners who might not understand or might not recognise the Bernardino Spumante <laughs> um uh, name, it's actually more more commonly known as Bernie Spew. Um, and so, um <laughs> I just found out recently uh, they discontinued making that wine about uh, two months, uh, two years ago. So um, rest in peace.
0: Uh, the New Zealand equivalent to Fruity Lexia, right? Or Absolutely, <laughs> <Freddy> Licks, <yeah. laughs>
1: which is again funny because you know that's a Brown Brothers wine, and um, you know, in classic full circle mode, um, you know my partner she also works in wine and ended up moving to the King Valley for for a year or so and um, bought a house in Milua, um about four hundred meters away from Brown Brothers. So, Freddie Elixir indeed.
0: <laughs> well. Let's dive into our 60-second history. Now, I'm going to get you to time me. Um, time is out. I have, Well, I'm going to put a caveat on this. There <laughs> is so much history around this wine, and I'm just going to do a kind of bare-bones history as much as I can. Um, let's hope I make it. I've only made it three times in the past, so. Bonne chance. <laughs> All right, tell me when you're ready. Ready when you are. All right. During the 15th and 16th century, they did not make sparkling wine. It was actually seen as a fault because the bottles would explode. Uh, The first documented uh, process for sparkling wine was actually in England in the 1660s and they actively tried to make this bubbly wine. It wasn't until the late 1600s that Dom Perignon started to play with this style and also started to play with this style in champagne specifically, developing different techniques as well as blending practices and perfecting the methods of making a white wine from dark grapes. Uh, and then the, we start to see wineries open up, uh, promoting this this style, this bubbly wine, like um, uh, Ruinart, and we've got others now with Moe and Clicquot, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We also now have famous sparkling wines coming from Italy, like Prosecco. Spain has Cava. There's a whole array of Five fantastic seconds. sparkling wines coming from all around the world, like Australia. And then we also have these really trendy pet nat styles, which I think we'll dive into right now.
1: We are out of time. Perfect timing.
0: Fantastic. I'm so excited about that.
1: <laughs> well, what wow. a way
0: to start off this year. <laughs> um, all right. Let's open a bottle of wine. Let's dive in. Sounds good. Do we want to do the one you brought or the one that I brought? That's, uh, let's start off with the one I bought. Fantastic. That's fantastic.
1: Lovely. My familiar friends
0: will be so unproud of me. <laughs> <laughs> so what is it that you've brought here?
1: Um, I've bought a wine from Tasmania. I um, ca- So um, uh, full frontal, no, not full frontal, uh, just to be completely uh, open. Uh, this is a producer that I do work with, uh, but I think uh, one of the better sparkling wines that is uh, coming from Australia, it's the Belbon Vintage Rosé. Uh, It's made by Natalie Fryer and this is a
0: 2020 vintage. I love a sparkling pink wine. They are something very, very special and very celebratory. Cheers. Cheers. Mm, That is delightful. Now, we kind of already touched on it a little bit, but what is it that really excited you about wine? Was it that sense of place or...
1: Yeah, um, I was a am an only child, um, and uh, when I was uh, young, uh, instead of having friends to go and play with, like siblings, um,
0: kind of <laughs> hung
1: out with um, atlases a lot. Yeah, yeah. And uh, played the old, memorize all the capital cities of the countries and the flags and things like that, and you know, just looking at relief maps. And yeah, I just was into geography and how the world came together and you know, tectonics and just stuff like that and just yeah. was a bit of a nerd actually hanging out by myself and I never really <laughs> spoke that much about it and I guess when I was a teenager it was kind of like that Moonos, knows all these pointless things that like facts that don't really matter but, you know, like I just kind of collected them on the way and, um, you know, when I started getting into wine and reading about wine and reading about places about wine I realised that all of the things that I was already quite interested in were, were kind of... All all mixed up into the whole wine trade and um, the drinking part helped too. That was yeah. uh, That was a, That was a, that was a big part too. But um, makes yeah,
0: everything a bit more fun, doesn't it? Absolutely,
1: it really helped me and emboldened me to speak my mind. Mm. So um, yeah, um, sparkling wine. I think was uh, you know it's it it, it hits you, it hits you in a different way. Um, often you know consumed as a celebration, so often happy times and
0: yeah, and people just enjoy to just throw it back as well there's that whole rumor that you know spark well it's not so much a rumor there is some science behind it but sparkling wine will get you tipsier faster but you Mm -hmm. know so the way we drink it rather than the (laughs)
1: um it's the um i i find as a wine professional that when i'm drinking any wine um i'm constantly thinking about it about its aroma it's the taste the flavors the characters how it's how it's developing in the glass and I think that actually helps to delay the effects of the alcohol, yeah, I think when you drink and you're not thinking about it, the alcohol kind of creeps up on you
0: well, drinking purposefully, right, and that's absolutely classy, yeah, yeah. Classy taking drinking. your time to understand and yeah. enjoy and yeah um, what's that that uh, ancient proverb drink better <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> Drink meant better, not more. Exactly, and
1: so yeah, like even drinking and studying, you know, like opening a wine atlas and being home one night and saying, "I'm learning about wine. I'm drinking wine, but I'm I'm reading about it. So it's okay that I'm drinking this whole bottle. It's still purposeful." (laughs) Exactly, and um, yeah, so I did as much as I could to get study happening, and you know, the the, yeah, the great thing about you know the booze industry is there's often competitions that might be based on your knowledge or your palate or all of the above and service. So in 2008, there, while I was studying my WSET, which is the Wine and Spirit Education Trust, um, that many people in restaurants kind of um, embark on as the start of their wine-specific or spirit-specific uh, education. Yep. Uh, there was a kind of competition that uh, I'd heard about called the Van der Champagne Award. And um, yeah, that was uh, a an award that's specifically for Australians. Um, that's actually been going since 1974. And, really? Um, yes, and it's held by the CIVC, which is the kind of governing body of champagne and the the um, the champagne Bureau, which is its Australian arm. and um, so yeah, every two years since 1974 uh, they would give out um, scholarships to professionals, students, um, and amateurs as well. So, um, yeah, I saw this and there was a student section and I thought this is great. I can learn about champagne and this is, this is a nice way to compartmentalize, you know, a really vast topic. Yep. Um, so yeah, I just kind of read lots and became more interested in, in, in the wine. I, I think there were like six or seven, like eight hundred word essays about uh, food and wine matching, the history of champagne production, blending, all of these things which are really interesting about the varieties. And you know, I thought it was just going to make me a better sommelier and just yeah. help with my study. So
0: I'm sure it actually did. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's it's it stuck with me. And you know, I read I read books by a guy called Rickard Julin, who's a really famous uh, Swedish um, writer. His Most amazing palate. Apparently, he can pick a 1928 Paul Roger blind. You know so because he's tried it about 17 times, Jesus Christ, yeah. So he's a little <laughs> bit of a rain man, and uh, so yeah, I, I, th- that was great. And um, I was fortunate enough to be named a finalist and um, and you know, being given two weeks to go to Sydney and do a blind tasting on three champagnes and kind of had to speak through them uh, in front of a sk- kind of scary panel of champagne experts from australia so um yeah uh the great thing about that was uh, one of my tutors at the time kate mcintyre who's a master of wine she was a former winner of uh, the um of this award and yeah. so she she'd, she'd visited champagne and so she said well look i've got um, access to a lot of champagne through the civc because part of what we do is we're trying to promote the region and so yeah myself and uh, the eventual winner of the professional section, Martin Williams, um, we were tasting blind a lot. And in two weeks I managed to probably taste over 100 Champagne, which is pretty incredible.
0: That and is an incredible access to that no one ever really gets the to, oh, the chance to do.
1: It was amazing. And it wasn't just them. It was through Sommeliers Australia they, and uh, Enriot, Champagne Rio were coming out. So it's, re- it's really hard to blind taste sparkling wine because the bubbles are there. Yeah, yeah. And so it's blended often as well. So it's really hard to often see a, a chardonnay dominant wine, over a pinot noir dominant wine, and yep. all of these factors. So, yeah, I was really lucky, and I'd, I'd already won just by having <laughs> these experiences. And you know, and to go up to S- Sydney and try these try these three wines blind and did pretty well, and had an amazing dinner in the Sydney Opera House. Yeah, <laughs> like incredible wines, you sitting know. over the water as well. Yeah, or? it was just it was it was it was just an incredible day and you know we, we tried all these wines and then I was announced the winner so you know two weeks later I'm in Champagne. It was the first time I'd left Australasia. Yeah yeah. The first time I'd been to Europe and I found myself walking around Rans and the amazing cathedral there which is where they used to um, do the coronation yes. of most of the French kings Uh and so yeah it was in in terms of an experience, an immersive experience where we had drink a lot of champagne every day, um, yeah, it really kind of of meant that I was going to be a champagne person for the rest of my life.
0: It's a hard life, isn't it? Someone's (laughs) got to do it. um, I'm going to directly steal a quote from a friend of mine, which is, my gold brick's too heavy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Wow, I was absolutely transfixed by that story. That is fantastic. It was a, it was a, it was a great time, um,
1: and I was able to go again in twenty fourteen uh, because it was the fortieth anniversary, and so hopefully in twenty twenty four, which is this now, year, later. yeah, <laughs> uh, we'll be doing a fiftieth kind of get together. Might might be twenty twenty five, but we'll see how things go. Here yeah. <laughs> um,
0: well, we always get asked this question. What glass should we be drinking sparkling wine from? Because some people have their very opinionated views on it. A wine glass, a coupe glass, a flute. Mm, a lot of, yeah. But There's a lot of strong ideas about it as well. What is What, what do you think we should be drinking our wine from? Our uh, sparkling wine from specifically? Uh, I
1: drink sparkling wine um, from, or oh, firstly, any glass that's, that's at hand. Yep. You know, if the need arises. But if I had the choice, um, look, I drink a lot of. Um, grower champagnes often from a burgundy glass. I mean, the uh, burgundy varieties, you know, yep. pinot noir, chardonnay. Um, but yeah, just a just a classic uh, everyday wine glass, I think, is
0: good. I That's mean. what I prefer, anyway. Yeah. Always. Um, there is I there is something fun and lovely about a coupe sometimes, but it's not there to show the the characteristic of the wine. Yeah,
1: no, I think a coupe is really celebratory, but you know. Also, like having a martini and walking around, I end up spilling it. So, yeah. you know, So you know, the martini is great when you're sitting down. I think. Yeah, but you know, and a, you a wine glass is gulps, perfect. You know, but um, I th- if uh, I've got I've got this problem where I constantly like swirling a glass in my hand, and um, yeah, if it were a coupe, it would just fly everywhere. Plus, yeah. you can't actually smell anything, and I think yeah, I think the key is. For me, is smelling. It's that that's not everyone's vibe. People just like to gulp it down. So if it makes it easy to gulp it down, then by all means, like I'm not going to be a. This is what you should drink the wine in. Um, but yeah, I I like a I like a wine glass.
0: There's a different tool for every occasion, right? So, Absolutely, but um, definitely
1: not a flute. But look, if it's if I'm, <laughs> if I'm presented with a flute, I'm going to drink it. Like I'm not going to like put my nose up at it.
0: No, and I, I'm the same. I just any glass but a flute.
1: Yeah, It's interesting. Uh, we had the chef de carve from Runa, and uh, he's a really interesting guy. and He's talking about how a lot of the dishwashers now are so good in restaurants that there's no imperfection in the glass where the bubbles actually come from. So sometimes you'll serve a glass that's, um, you know, that's been through a winter halter washer, for example, that uses mm. reverse osmosis, and there's nothing there's there's nothing for the, the the wine to cast a bubble from, so it looks flat. And you know, until you get it and, onto
0: your palate, and it just goes. Yeah, but it's
1: really hard because like you'll serve it to a customer and they'll send it back because they think that you're giving them flat wine and you've just <laughs> opened, you've just opened a bloody really expensive wine. So you know you find people actually scratching the bottoms of the of the glasses so there's an imperfection, so the bubbles are a little bit more effervescent.
0: Yeah. That, that uh, makes a lot of sense as well. I um, People always prefer the imagery of a bubbly wine. They want to see that effervescence. That's, you know, that awful. It definitely happens a lot in Australia where, you know, people throw fruit in there to really activate the bubbles, you know. <laughs> um,
1: and that's okay. It's and okay. We're not judging. It's, a per- it's
0: absolutely perfectly fine. And you know what? Again, on Christmas Day, I will still do that every single day. Absolutely. Yeah, it's celebrating. Um, Well, we've talked a lot about your time in Champagne, so why don't we dive in? Let's dive into what Champagne is. Let's break down these walls. What is Champagne?
1: Champagne is a wine from a place called Champagne. And um, look, I know there are a lot of people that say Champagne and it's the the, the catch call for all sparkling wine. But I guess the famous, I think the famous quote is, um, not all sparkling wine is champagne but all
0: all champagne is sparkling but all,
1: wine. Sh- but all champagne is sparkling wine yeah um, but um in terms of its style with the second fermentation which happens in the in, in the bottle that you consume it from I think that's what makes it special because you've got uh, a whole universe of bubbles in one in, in, in one bottle that's while you're getting stylistic sameness with a lot of producers you're you're actually just kind of getting a fermentation which has happened in that single bottle and, yeah, that's, that's pretty interesting I find.
0: Yeah, and it's a whole process that they've developed that has been going for hundreds of years. Some people might be hearing our podcast dog, Grayson, very attention-seeking today, but <laughs> let's move on. Big so, fan of Grayson. Yeah. He, um, the, the processes that have been developed over hundreds of years ago in Champagne, like the that secondary fermentation... Um, how is that achieved?
1: Um, so a base wine is made, um, so much like a classic dry, uh, a, a classic table wine. So the grapes come in, uh, they are pressed very gently. Um, it's not really about um, extraction of skin characters, phenolics. It's more about the f- um, the purity of the juice. Um, yeah. And so the base wine is generally uh, about ten percent, ten point five percent,
0: and ABV. Fantastic. Yeah
1: which is um, obviously much lighter than what we generally have as table wines being about 12 and a half, 13, all the way up to 15 or 16 if you're from some warmer areas. But, um, yeah, the base wines have very high in acid uh, and, um, you know, it's an art to blending uh, champagne and that happens a lot with some of the big houses. And, yeah. Yeah, those people are actually tasting those base wines before they've gone through the second part of the process. And so... Yeah, base wines are really important because that's kind of your colour palette. Um, yeah. So, you know, so you can decide whether it's going to be a monovarietal thing, whether it's going to be Chardonnay or just Pinot Noir or Pinot Meunier. Um, but, yeah, you've got all of these different characters and you can make a blend based on that. Um, reserve wines are used, um, which are wines from past vintages, Um. when it's, when it's a non-vintage wine. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, you can have those that have been aged in a barrel or kept in a tank or in Bollinger's case, for example, they leave the reserve wines in Magnums yep. under cork. Um, so essentially the wines are under cork twice.
0: Wow. Okay.
1: Yeah. And so... Yeah, all of that classic wine table winemaking uh, comes into effect with the base wines. Uh, some go through malolactic fermentation, others prefer not because the malolactic fermentation can really soften the acids, which yep. a lot of producers are really uh, striving to achieve, whereas other producers, they're looking to make riper, riper styles where there's a little bit more hang time on the vine um, and uh, they generally stop malolactic fermentation, so...
0: Well, let's break down what malolactic <laughs> fermentation is as well, uh, for those who don't know. Yeah, um,
1: very simply, it's malic acid, which is like an appley acid. It's
0: yep. um, so found primarily in green apples, right? Yeah, that, that yeah, tart yeah. Green imagine
1: apple. crunching into a fresh green, green apple. Uh, so that's malic acid. And so lactic acid is a more milky... Hence the word lactic, uh, a more milky, softer acid, and so it goes through a process like a secondary fermentation, yeah. uh, where that happens, where 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 the malic gets transformed into into lactic acid. Yeah,
0: and lactic acid is commonly found in things like Greek yogurt, for example. That's Absolutely. Yeah. That's the kind of acidity that you're looking at. So, um, we were actually talking about this just before with the bottle of champagne I've got downstairs, um, which is a 2010 vintage. It's super malolactic. It's got that really creamy texture and that comes from that, fir- mm. that style of fermentation.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um,
0: and that's something that I really look for anyway, cause I love that textural kind of experience.
1: Yeah. That's the beauty about, uh, you know, there's so many different winemaking techniques that go into champagne. And I think wine making is a huge part of champagne and like you can have some very hands-off wine making approaches to a lot of table wine but
0: yeah it's
1: very difficult to have hands-off wine making when you have to you know make two fermentations happen so so in the uh, timeline i guess of um, the traditional method champagne method yeah uh, timeline we're up to the point where you've got the base wine and at some point the base wine might be in a barrel, the yeah. base wine might be in a magnum if you're a Bollinger under a cork.
0: Do they do any steel tank or is it purely glass and uh, barrel?
1: I think they have some reserves as well. So they just got lots of different ones so yeah. in Bollinger's case, but they've got a huge amount that is under magnum, but you can imagine how um, how incredibly labor intensive that is.
0: Yeah, absolutely, it would be, and a magnum's a one and a half liter yeah. bottle. So basically, it's a two bottle bottle.
1: Exactly, and th- they are making a lot of those. So yeah. you know that's that, that's a lot of space. Um, that's a, that's a, that's a thing as well. Like champagne, you're you holding a lot of stock for a long time as well. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, I mean, the base wine might be in a tank. There might be some base wine in a tank that could be like a Solera style uh, yeah, yeah. for all you sherry fans out there. Uh, where you're just adding so, so where you're just adding new wine into the mix the whole time and yep. you're getting a base wine that's got a lot more complexity because you know you've got different vintages um, and so with the balbon that we're drinking the rosé um, this was 100% barrel fermented yep and uh, the lees were stirred which are the lees which are the dead yeast cells they're actually really yummy
0: they're fantastic i love seeing wine makers promote the fact that they mature on lees Yes. I love seeing that.
1: Yes. Lees are very important, I mean, and they're kind of the unsung hero for, um, for 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 wine production. It kind of helps a wine. It helps to feed a wine. It gives wine a bit more structure and stability.
0: Well, those dead yeast cells, they create nutrients for the, the active... <laughs> Yeast that is creating the the alcohol in the wine as well, exactly, and also creates texture yes. and, and character. So
1: and yes, so lees is incredibly important for champagne in particular, and um, you know wines made in the champagne method. So, yeah, Nat she um, she uh, stirs her wines uh, on lees for nine months, and after that, it uh, the wine the base wine not sparkling yet is yeah. transferred into a bottle. Um, there is some yeast, more yeast added. Yep. Um, there is, uh, some sugar added and it's sealed with it's, uh, it's, it, it's sealed and there you go. You're on your way. Yeah. Uh, you're on your way. And generally it's under a crown seal, uh, which is to keep everything fresh and vibrant and it'll stay in the bottle on the lees for in champagne, the minimum aging requirements for a non-vintage, Yep. To be left in the bottle to undergo the secondary fermentation where the bubbles start to happen is 15 months, but generally producers do that for longer. Yep. For a vintage champagne, it's uh, 36 months, so three years, so that's right. a long time to wait. Yeah, but yes, the fermentation happens, and with fermentation, yes, you get alcohol, which is good because the base one, remember, I said it was about 10.5 percent, so mm-hmm. we needed to get up to about 12 and a half, and so. The fermentation, which happens in an anaerobic, so uh, without oxygen, yeah, uh, in the bottle, means that carbon dioxide, which is a natural byproduct of fermentation, uh, has nowhere to go, so it dissolves. Dissolves into the and
0: pressurizes the bottle itself. Exactly, yep. and
1: the pressurization will be dependent on how much sugar is added. So yep. it's a you don't want to put too much sugar in because you that, got a bomb.
0: Yeah, that leads to explosions. And um, that happens
1: a lot. And that, that was happening to poor old Dom Perignon. And he actually was trying to avoid that to start with. He did not want that because, um, yeah, it was a problem. And if all you English listeners out there, you Brits will love this. And <laughs> you probably already know it, actually. But the Brits are so happy that they um, they were the first, apparently, because not because they knew what they were doing, but. Because they knew how to make glass.
0: Well, it was. I've been reading about this. The French were using wood-fired glass, mm. and the Brits were making coal-fired glass. Exactly, and so, that glass was stronger. Yes, and could hold that carbonation.
1: The glass was much, much stronger. So yeah, it um, it, it held the carbonation.
0: Yeah, very prideful moment for the English, right? <laughs>
1: and if you're a, a southern French person, uh, um, I know some southern French people and, um, you know, they'll be shouting at the uh, at their speakers right now about um, what about Limoux? what about Limoux? And there's a place in the southwest of France <laughs> uh, which is near Carcassonne um, and uh, they were producing sparkling wines, uh, more of an ancestral method which we'll kind of go into a bit bit more, but, uh, yeah, they predated, um, the champenois and apparently Don Perignon kind of passed through on his way to, um, Santiago doing the, um, you know, doing the, t- doing the Compostela, uh, <laughs> the, the walk. And so apparently learned a few, few things from them, but you know, history forgets sometimes.
0: Yeah. Um, history is written by the people who create it, right? It's not. And Champagne won. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Uh, and so we're, we're at, we're at the, uh, the sitting on the lees in the bottle. Mm.
1: Um, yeah, and the lees are so important, aren't they? Because you know, the lees, uh, obviously the lees have got nowhere to go. Usually mm-hmm. if you're in a barrel or in a tank, they go to the bottom. Um, and imagine being in a bottle or a magnum, um, which are the only two sizes that the secondary fermentation happens, by the way. Yeah, if yeah. you're drinking a piccolo of champagne that did not happen in the champagne method. No, it it's was a transfer method. Yeah. Um but yeah, all of that lees time uh leads to something called autolysis and uh, autolysis is a character of flavor compounds which start to happen uh when there's contact with that lees on the wine.
0: Yeah, yeah. So and very so, important. Yeah, very important. Um and that pressure's all building. Mm. Um how do Because when we open a bottle of champagne, there's no lees at the bottom. Yeah, you
1: got to get it out, right? How do we do that? You got to get it out. Um, yeah, it's. Um, I think it's a huge part into uh, into why champagne uh, and traditional method uh, winemaking is very technical. It has to be um, so. Well, there are, there's actually a producer in the south of Champagne, and his name is uh, Emmanuel Lasein. And so yep. Jacques L'Azane, Champagne Jacques Lasein, amazing producer, very very cultish small producer. Uh, mostly make Chardonnay in a sea of otherwise Pinot Noir. Yeah, yeah. In the Côte d'Or, but um, he so he hand disgorges everything. So we're talking about taking the leaves, getting them to the top of the bottle. Not that. magically, by, by, but by making them elevate, by levitate, but they get put upside down.
0: Yeah, so that's the riddling process, right? Yeah, Where So yeah. they spin it over a period of time and exactly. gently bring it down to the top of the bottle as that bottle sits almost upside down.
1: Yes. And so in the past, that was uh, a massive job that uh, Riddlers would uh, go through the cellars and, you know, the wines uh, were in these A-frames and they'd turn them maybe an eighth of a turn. Mm-hmm. Uh, every week or so and slowly the bottle would turn from being 45 degrees to mostly upright and over that period you'd have the lees that would kind of slowly um, head to the to the top of the bottle which was actually at the bottom at the mm-hmm. time to a point where it was sur point which is like on the point. Um, and that was very important because in order to disgorge um, where you pop the bottle uh, and it gets pushed out, it, it was really important in terms of making sure you didn't have too much wastage uh, of the wine um, to have that, um, that lees in the top. And in order to make that uh, a lot easier and um, a lot safer, um, what would happen is there would be baths of uh, brine, so mm. salty water. Obviously doesn't freeze at zero, zero, zero degrees Celsius. Uh, yeah. So it will be at like minus three. And uh, yeah, through of, often through mechanization, you'd have a whole bunch of bottles being put into this brine uh, yeah. upside down, which would freeze the plug, which is the Lee's thing. So yeah, you've yeah. got a kind of you know, a little snot plug. <laughs>
0: Does that make you want to drink champagne? Makes (laughs) me want to drink champagne.
1: Uh, Yeah, you get the snot plug and uh, yeah, that would solidify and would go through a bottling line, take the crown seal off or or whichever and it would pop. It would pop it out and then you add either just wine, like topped up wine.
0: Yeah, which is that same that same reserve wine stock, basically. Exactly,
1: exactly. Or this is the time where you add uh, the dosage, so mm-hmm. the sugar, which uh, which will decide how sweet the wine is. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, some producers decide not to do any, and that's a zero dosage style or a brut nature. Yeah. Um. Whereby they just top up with a bit of wine, and so getting back to Emmanuel Lazain, uh, just as a very hard worker, I think he and one other person do it for the whole production. He hand disgorges. Yeah. yeah. So he has it upside down, and he slowly he uses this tool, which is kind of a like a elongated um, uh, bottle opener, yeah, like yeah. a like like for like like for just for crown seals, and he's as he's bringing his arm up as the as the wine's coming up it, he pops it and it shoots out all of the lees and he puts his thumb over it, the top, to make sure he doesn't lose any more. <laughs> and he's so good at doing it that just the lees comes out and then it gets bottled with the cork. No addition. So right. Amazing so wine, very see, handmade wine.
0: Yeah, wow. I'd uh, have to try and find some of this stuff because this is where, you know, these producers are really kind of starting to, especially in New World wines, which we'll get into a little bit later, where mm. it's all really handmade and you know putting that extra time and care and attention into it makes it worth seeking out and Definitely. worth drinking. Definitely. Yeah. So all of this is so labour intensive to get just to a bottled wine.
1: Mm. And, you know, it's labour intensive and, you know, if it's a vintage wine, for example, so, you know, if you're sitting on stock for three to four years. Mm-hmm. And so that's part of the reason why it can be very expensive. And it's, champagne prices are just soaring at the moment.
0: Yeah. But the labor is so intensive. So mm. I think people forget about that <laughs> quite a lot.
1: It People do. And, you know, a really interesting thing about the way champagne works is there are uh, the Maisons, the big growers, mm-hmm. um, the Mowets, for example, um, and for a long time, they were the voice of Champagne. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were reliant on growers and people growing the grapes. So, you know, uh, they might grow 10% of what they needed. Yeah. yeah. But 90% of the, gra- of the volume of fruit was coming from growers and small growers and plenty of it. And so... There was actually a, um, I think in, I uh, can't remember exactly when, like early 1900s. I think it just predated World War I. I someone's going to tell me I'm wrong. But um, yeah, there, there, there was a riot and the growers revolted against the houses and Ayala, which is an IE, was actually broken into and burnt down. Right. Yeah, they ate the rich.
0: Well, one thing the French are really, really good at is revolutions. Uh, they they do that. <laughs> um, All right. Should we move on to Prosecco? We spent so much time on Champagne. Let's let's move on. Let's not forget about Prosecco. Let's not forget about Prosecco. So Prosecco is you know Italian variety of sparkling wine, mm, yeah. but not exclusively.
1: Well, yes, yes, not exclusively. <laughs> the variety is called Glera or it was called Glera um, and, or Glera. And uh, the Italians decided that they would change the name of the grape from Glera, which wasn't particularly romantic, to Prosecco, which yeah. really
0: rolls off the of the tongue. Quite which is quite also nicely. the region it originates from exactly yeah. but
1: the fact that they called it a grape meant it was a meant it was open to being labeled varietally yeah yeah which we had which we do in places like the king valley in australia but we'll get back to that but the point is this uh, great variety glera was a much more simple great uh, variety um Historically, they were making very rustic style, farm style wines that were actually sparkling, a little bit like the 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 Blanquette de Limoux that we I, I spoke about a little bit. Um, so yeah, they they didn't go through the secondary fermentation. The the the, the bubbles happened because the um, the wine was bottled before it finished fermentation. Yeah, we'll get into that a bit more. But um, yeah, more in the twentieth century, uh, they started going for a method that. Italians hate it when you call it the Charmat method because it was actually this method of producing sparkling wine Mm. was invented by an Italian and his name is Federico Uh Martinotti. And so the metodo Martinotti or the Italian method... ...was invented by an Italian and so the Frenchman Charmat, uh, he was involved... Um, ...but in the very last part of producing these tanks in which the whole secondary fermentation... ...which makes a sparkling, a la champagne, however in a gigantic tank,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: i.e. easier, cheaper, faster... Uh, and then
0: you can bottle straight out of that. Don't have to do the riddling and disgorging. You can let that settle. Very out. clean. Yeah.
1: You leave it in the tank. Yep. Leave it in the tank. So that was that was uh, that was an Italian French invention, and so yeah, that kind of revolutionised how sparkling wine could be made on mass. Yeah. And um, and everyday drinking and for more of a chunk of. The, the market, so it, be, it, it became more accessible for a lot more people, which accessible, I think is
0: great. affordable. Delicious. Delicious. Fast. Yeah. There's great Prosecco out there. It just so happens there is a little bit. It is stigmatized a little bit, kind of like um, Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc, you know? Yeah, exactly. Stigmatized a tiny bit, but there is fantastic Prosecco.
1: But as we say in the wine industry, if you're buying wine and you want the really, really good Burgundy, you got to sell a lot of Marlboro Sauvignon Blanc from a producer that they yeah importer might bring in so (laughs) it's a very important vehicle in terms of how the wine industry works so it is we as we as kind of beverage people we've got to make sure we don't turn our nose up for that which is which is great and you know what i like i like prosecco sometimes i want something delicious and and look there's a lot more drier styles now they used to be a bit fruity and sweet and yes they still exist but like a drier style and it's, it's just a good thing on a summer's day.
0: Perfect thing for a summer's day, especially in January. <laughs> exactly.
1: And if there's a third of the bottle left, I'll feel less guilty about leaving it. Yeah. Than yeah. I would with a bottle of champagne. Exactly. Pay, yeah. You know, too much money for.
0: Exactly. <laughs> now, there's the, the Spanish style as well, which is very popularized in the UK, which is Cava.
1: Yes, indeed, Cava. Before we go on to Cava, I just want to give a quick mention to another Italian Style, which is made in the traditional method, which is called Franciacorta, uh, that comes from Lombardy. So we're Milaners, not too far away from. Uh, it's actually east of Milan, Brescia, and uh, they've been making amazing champagne style, so traditional method sparkling, and kind of became their own do in the '60s or '70s. And so they use primarily, chardon- mostly Chardonnay. It's actually eighty percent, eighty five, eighty percent Chardonnay. Yeah, maybe eighty five percent Chardonnay. There's ten percent Pinot Noir being planted and five percent Pinot Bianco a la Pinot Blanc. So yeah. great ones from there. Fergettina, for example, amazing. So don't miss out on those because you can get champagne style. But Probably a bit more affordable, although it's starting to go that way as well. So yeah, getting and quick.
0: Also, a little bit left of center as well. You know, absolutely, absolutely. The world is better with a bit of variety. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I
1: love trying sparkling wines from weird places in the world. So like a sparkling Nebbiolo from Piedmont. So yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it, that's that's the beautiful thing. You can make sparkling wine. You just have to have the right ingredients.
0: Well, that's the th- you can make it from any grape you have, mm. just treat it a certain way. Mm.
1: I also love Carver, and Carver uh, is fantastic. And
0: oh man, I've had some good times in Barcelona and Catalonia. Cava <laughs> and, and
1: has fueled that.
0: I mean, it is a fantastically again accessible, fun, beautiful wine. Mm-hmm. But it is a it, more often than not a champagne method as well, right? Yeah,
1: no, it's 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 a hundred percent the the traditional method. And um, <clears throat> getting back to the traditional method, I think you know what happened in Cava as well is they actually. Got to a point where you know we we're talking about the riddling and it being very labour intensive. And today, uh, the the hand riddling is very much a relic of the past. It happens mm-hmm. in small amounts, maybe with small cuvées like a Tête de Cuvée, like the you know the very top wines yeah, that yeah. some champagne producers would make. But it's largely mechanised now, and the mechanisation for the riddling, i.e., getting the lees to the top of the bottle so we can make a snot plug, is um. Is by machine and this machine is called a giro pellet. And it's it's like a cube where you put all of the base wine in. Not the base wine, sorry. All the the secondary fermentation wine. Exactly. Before it's been disgorged. And the machine does it. So it's this giant cube, (coughs) cube of fun. And um, yeah, (laughs) so they... uh, (laughs) That mechanized everything, made everything much easier, and the champagne went. Thank God, we're gonna we'll buy these. These are yeah, fantastic. Yeah. This is gonna help a lot. So yeah, um, cover Car- kind of really happened post phylloxera, which happened in Europe in the late eighteen hundreds, yeah, where yeah. a um a mite, an aphid that loves snacking on roots, um, was imported to Europe via. Uh, Via France from the US, and mm-hmm. it basically decimated all the vineyards.
0: And we we mentioned this in season one on our episode with one of our friends, Bonnie, talk about fortified wine. It Hi, did Bonnie. A, it did a very incredible thing, which is kill the fortified wine industry as well. Yeah,
1: look, it, it was it, it's kind of the big reset, really, because mm-hmm. you know that happened, and um, you know, since then, uh, pretty much most vines uh, around the world. Uh, are now uh, grafted onto a American rootstocks, which are resistant to this uh, to this aphid. But yeah, it's 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 a, it's a plague. It, it, it it's it's an issue in many places. I mean, you, like place in Australia, Yarra Valley, for example. But it is around, and it will mm-hmm. always be around. But in 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 Catalonia and in and around Penedès, like south of uh, Barcelona, where uh, a lot of red vines were grown. Um, uh they decided that it was an opportunity with the replanting to maybe go further away from the red wines and go towards white grape varieties. So they planted a lot more. Um, there's three great. There's three main varieties for cava and uh, they're all autochthonous um, uh, varieties, as in they're indigenous varieties from Spain. And so you've got Macabell um, and you've got Charello. And Parallada. and so these three white grape varieties were planted, and they were kind of the basis for for the sparkling wine. there. obviously, it's much warmer in yep. uh, in Catalonia and in Penedès than say in around Epinay. Yeah. Um, but the good thing about these varieties is they kind of have a lot of um, naturally high acidity. So yeah,
0: I've had a couple of table wines from these these varieties. Every now and then they're pretty, you don't see them often. but yeah, when they're quite you do, rare,
1: but they're around and they're interesting, aren't they're,
0: they? They're oh, super high acid, really bright, really you know, bouncy and vibrant. And I'm sure that that kind of creates that really fun, fruity, sparkling wine, you know.
1: Yeah, I think, yeah, for me, Carver gets this lovely kind of chalky mineral thing, which kind of, you know, kind of, Courses some really lovely focus on the wines and yeah. and, and um, But yeah, I think there are, there are great wines. Uh, just like Champagne, there are some really, really fantastic wines. And, and, and then there are wines that are probably made more for fast consumption and they're yeah. generally a bit more simple. But um, you know, the largest sparkling producer in the world is not from Champagne. It is from Cava and that's Fréchinette.
0: Right. Wow, I, didn't, I did not know that.
1: Mm. They make something like four or five million
0: bottles a year. Wow, that is enormous. Yeah, it's it's a lot. It's a so, lot. so that'd be the, the probably the cheap cover that they drink a lot in, in England,
1: you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, mate, yeah. Probably, yes. Yeah. Um, I think they drink a lot of it in Barcelona as well. Yeah, they
0: probably <laughs> as well, yeah. Um I mean we've talked a lot about you know, Prosecco. Um we've mentioned a few Australian wines. We've already been drinking one. What are some of your favorite sparkling wines from Australia? We should also put a shout out to sparkling Shiraz, the Australian, you know, hero.
1: Sparkling Shiraz, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, and then I guess if we're talking about sparkling Shiraz, is in a red grape variety. You know, we're going to give a bit of a head tip to uh, a hat tip to uh, Lambrusco in yeah, Italy yeah. and the re- the originators of the sparkling red. But yes, the sparkling Shiraz is such an Australian thing, and it's. Uh, it's one time a year when it's really expected and that's Christmas Day.
0: It is, yeah.
1: So, uh, yeah, get your turkey, get your Sepulchre Sparkling Shiraz. Um, <laughs> my favourite Sparkling Shiraz is actually, um, I, I, love, I love the Sepulchre one. I think it's great, especially with some bottle age. Yeah, yeah. It starts to take on those really interesting kind of... Um, savoury forest floor characters and I think that's a really interesting dichotomy with the spark, you know, with the effervescence. Um, but there is a Primo Estate wine and uh, they're in South Australia, McLaren Vale, and they make an incredible sparkling uh, – it's not a Shiraz, it's actually made with red varieties. I think they're all Italian actually, uh, but it's called uh, Joseph. Yeah, right. And this is really interesting because they – the dosage is not just a sugar sugary kind of liquid that they add it's um it's a range of fortified wines from the 50s 60s 70s and 80s that they wow. just keep adding to a blend and and then that's their added dosage so it's not it's it's fantastic it's it's already got a lot of complexity from from the addition of that And so yeah It's and, a beautiful wine
0: And the timber as well Coming from that That wine That would have been Matured in timber For you know Yeah 50, 60 years <laughs> like,
1: I know you're a spirits guys so I yeah. know you're like Talking about You know Barrels and stuff So
0: Fortified yeah. wine Is something I'm very Interested in And it purely started With you know Where those flavours Came from in spirits But mm. it's really cool To see that happening In wine as mm. well
1: So yeah Check out the Primo Estate
0: Primo Estate okay. Get one
1: for next uh, Next Christmas
0: Um but what are some of the main regions we can look for in Australian... Australian
1: wine? Uh, bubbly
0: wine. Bubbly wine. Yeah, Australian
1: bubbly Australian wine. Australian bubbly wine. Yeah. Uh, look, I mean, Shandon Ch- came along, which is part of the Moet Hennessy group, the Louis Vuitton yeah. Moet Hennessy group. So they were very clever in uh, the with Moet to Chandon because they didn't call it Moet. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, they called it Shandon. So it's very clearly... A part of their company, but outside of Champagne. So, um, yeah, I think Shandon have been doing excellent things. Um, the winemaking there is excellent. They source from great, great places. And They might be based in the Yarra Valley, but they source a lot of their fruit from places like the Alpine Valleys in northeast Victoria.
0: Yep.
1: Uh, King Valley, like the Whitlands, the High Plateau. So Whitlands High Plateau is a sub-region of King Valley in northeast Victoria, and that's about 800 metres above sea level. So mm-hmm. great acidity a lot of vineyards there that are planted to Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier, just for that kind of sparkling. But, um, yeah, that would be at Mainland. I think, uh, you know, Petaluma have done some amazing things in Adelaide Hills. There's some great Adelaide Hills spots, so the the coolest part of South Australia. So I think it's a great place for sparkling wines. So Petaluma were doing some great things there. Brian Crozer kind of really was the driving force behind that, um, yeah, so there 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 have been some really important people uh, that have really kind of pushed the um push the whole sparkling trade, and like Brian Crozer was one of them. And so yeah, yeah the uh, the Dulce wines are kind of part of that whole kind of family now because uh, Petaluma was or Crozer, I think, was was, was bought by another company. But um, yeah, the main thing for sparkling wine for me in Australia is is Tasmania, and Tasmania has the Best climate in terms of natural acidity, um, it you know, hands down in Australia. So,
0: some of my favourite sparklings that I've ever had have come from Tamar Valley in in Tasmania. They've just blown me away—just texture and acidity and character. It's just
1: Tamar Piper's River. Like some of the Piper's River stuff, like you know, the Aris wines are doing. You know, obviously come to mind. I think you've got some Aris in your cellar.
0: I do. And this Bella Bond that you brought as well, obviously Tasmanian as well. Yeah,
1: Natalie was the winemaker at Jans, which is a really well-known sparkling producer in the Pipers River as well. So, yeah, there are some great sparkling producers doing some amazing things and, um, yeah.
0: I mean, just sparkling wine coming from every... Tassie. (laughs) Yeah, Tassie. How good. It's one of my favourite things about going down there every year is just drinking bubbly wine. I mean, there's whiskey as well, but... (laughs) All the good things. Yeah. And I think we should move on to. Well, it's an old method, but it's become very trendy and hip for young winemakers of recent. Yep. Let's go on to Pet Nat Wines. Let's open this one up as well. Let's do it. So, this is from Doom Juice. They're a, they're a Victorian group, aren't they?
1: I think, yeah. I actually haven't tasted much Doom Juice. So, this will be, I think this will be a first time for me.
0: Well, this is a sparkling Shiraz as well. But it's a sparkling Shiraz Rosé.
1: But not as we know it. Exactly. Yeah. It's a Rosé. We're drinking this cold.
0: Yeah. I've had some fantastic Doom Juice um, wines, but they've absolutely done some really fun things with that Pet Nat category. So what is Pet Nat for, for people who don't know?
1: Pet Nat is short for Petit Naturel, um, which is French for yum. Uh,
0: <laughs> nice. No, so... Um,
1: Yeah, Pétion Naturel, uh, a.k.a. uh, Method Ancestral. So the ancestral method um, is very much a humble, easy way of producing a wine that was sparkling. So during the fermentation process when all the sugar's been converted into alcohol, um, yeah, you kind of get like 80 90% of the way. And while it's still fermenting, it gets bottled. Uh, it gets bottled, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, w- once it's closed uh, the CO2 kind of keeps building up and then you're left with this really lovely, tasty, easygoing wine that's effervescent, it's a different bubble style. Yeah. It's definitely a little bit more of a larger bubble, a bit yeah. more aggressive and surly.
0: And we're seeing that right here as well comparatively to the, the wine that we tasted before where it had gone through that traditional method. Mm, this one's to, a huge bubble. Yeah. Yeah. It's aggressive, it's, you know, it's kicking off in the bottle. It's, kick, it's kicking <laughs> off. But uh,
1: also at the bottom of the bottle, you see this kind of
0: fine dust
1: of uh, sediment, which is our good old friend Lee's.
0: Yeah. And that will continue to develop as the the bottle is matured or, you mm. know, rested for, for however long you want to. Mm. You'll start to see that wine evolve.
1: Yeah, it's historically as well, like uh, the Italians uh, with the Colfondo Prosecco, the style that was kind of just the usual style for making that wine before old Martinotti came along. Um, yeah, some some prefer to mix the bottle beforehand, so the leaves are kind of throughout it, so it's this cloudy mess, mm-hmm. uh, some prefer to have it upright for a time so it's all at the bottom and you have the clean stuff to start with and you can leave it or someone can have the real muddy stuff so, you know, people have their likes.
0: Yeah, and there's no wrong way. There's absolutely no wrong way to drink a wine. Now, are there any particular wineries? I mean, you mentioned so many so far that you think we should be looking out for for each of these kind of styles or categories from around the world.
1: Well, I'll say an Australian one, and then I'll say some other stuff. Uh, the first um, ancestral method or pet net to be produced commercially in Australia was from Sutton Grange, which yeah. is in Central Victoria, Bendigo. And uh, yeah, the winemaker at the time was a man called Gilles Lapalu, who's uh, who's French but moved here in nineteen eighty seven. And so yeah, he that's kind of got the ball rolling and now you see many, many styles. So yeah, Gilles was the winemaker there. He's now a vermouth maker with Maideny. Yeah. And uh, yeah, he's got his own he's got his own uh, label now called Bertram Bespoke. Which I sell.
0: Yeah. <coughs> Disclaimer. Um, and as for I mean, you've mentioned so many champagne producers. I was going to mention one that I've recently encountered, which was Paul Lenoir. Um, a very tiny, tiny little winemaker, mm. but the only reason I encountered them was they were sending some barrels over to Scotland to mature whiskey at Ardnamurchan Distillery. So I started looking into them, and their wine is just phenomenal. All matured in brand new French oak, fantastic. Wow, you know, brand new Limousin.
1: Limousin is the forest.
0: Yes, it is not the, uh, <laughs> the not the species of oak. <laughs>
1: Um, this is what I love about champagne. Uh, you know, you think you've tasted a lot of champagne and someone says, Hey, I like this style. I'm like, great. Didn't know about them. I want to try them now. (laughs) Yeah. No, definitely looking forward to trying that. Um, for me, um, what I'm really loving at the moment, uh, we had a Vuette Sorbet Fidel, which is a Blanc de Noir. So made out of, um, black grapes only. And, uh, yeah, delicious. I love that style. And um, yeah, the wines just get better and better. Uh, yeah, just really impressed by this, the quality and the and the purity of those wines. Um, so love that. Um, but, uh, yeah, also love just Blanc de Blanc. I love Chardonnay, and I think, uh, you know, some of the Chardonnays that are coming out of Champagne are absolutely exquisite.
0: The, yeah, the Blanc de Blancs coming out are mm. just... Incredible. I've
1: been lucky enough to have some really amazing things lately, like some 96s and 2002s, and so I feel very honoured to be able to partake in some of those bottles. (laughs) So the Tatongers, Comte de Champagne and the salons, they're pretty amazing. But um, I think for a bit more everyday drinking, there's a producer called um, Dibault Valois. Yeah. And, yeah, uh, yeah, they're they're based in the northern part of the Côte de Blanc, so Chardonnay town, really chalky. Yeah. yeah. Their Blanc de Blanc's fantastic, so...
0: Yep. Even f- there's a there's a wine producer uh, a blanc de blanc producer Verreson Clark, which were which again Bangford Park, fantastic wine to get onto. Nice, an everyday drinker. Yeah, yeah, can't go wrong.
1: So yeah, lots of champagnes. Uh, what prosecco. Are sparkling Prosecco? I really like what I like Prosecco wise. Belinda's good. Belinda for me is just a really. Kind of workhorse style. No, it's not workhorse. That's that's not fair. <laughs> it's, a f- it's fine. It's yeah. very fine and like the extra, yeah, the the the, the, the dry style for me is, yeah, it, it, it's great. It's got a fine bubble. It's, yeah.
0: I, I love that dry, fine, crisp, clean kind of peripheral. Yeah.
1: Franciacotta, there's a producer called Fergetina. Yep. Really amazing. Check him out. Fergetina. And, uh, oh, cover-wise... Uh, there's a producer called Raventos y Blanc And um, they were part of the Carva Dio Which is the mm-hmm. kind of governing body And uh, they actually left it Maybe f- five or six years ago Probably longer Because, you know, I'm getting older And things seem like they <laughs> didn't happen that long ago But they actually happened a decade ago
0: that's uh, yeah. that's how life moves on, isn't it? Yeah,
1: so um, they actually left the Cava Dio and one of the reasons they left it is because Cava as a Dio in Spain is really interesting because while 90% of the production happens in Catalonia, uh, in Penedès, like south of uh, Barcelona, um, the Dio actually allows for there to be production of these, these wines in places like Rioja. Um, Extremadura, which is maybe 700 kilometers away. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, a lot of quality producers are finding that difficult because they want that kind of specificity of place. And so, yeah, Ravento C. Blanc uh, left it and they've started a new Dio, uh, called the Rio d'Anoya, which is the river Anoya. Mm-hmm. So it's very specific. Um, and, yeah, so they're still making that style, but I think they're, they're, their wines are just beautifully made and I believe Spanish acquisition where Bonnie works um, from the Hereth episode um, <laughs> or fortified uh, yeah they uh, so S- Scott brings those in and then that excellent wines from the very base level style and there's a beautiful rosé I really like rosé and this one's called rosat dinit which means in Catalan it's, it's Catalan for rosé of the night
0: that is a fantastic name, mm. and very so that, suggestive. <laughs> yes. and so that's
1: got a l- like three percent or something of red wine, which is Monastrell, uh, yep.
0: aka Mataro mm-hmm. or Mourvedre. It's a great wine. Get it? Yeah. Well, I think we might finish up, but I've got four final questions for you. Oh, that you have not seen yet. Actively tried to hide these from you. These are brand new compared to last season, so you wouldn't have even heard them if you have listened in before. Oh. Okay. You're ready to go?
1: Straight up answer. Straight out. Free yeah. work. Okay.
0: Ready. I'll try. What's your shot of choice? Fennett. Fantastic. What's your guilty pleasure drink? Guilty pleasure drink. This one's a tough one, isn't it?
1: That is a tough one. Ooh, Guava vodka cruiser.
0: That is the best one. How do you like your martini? Shaken or stirred?
1: I'm not going to give that an answer because there should only be one answer.
0: Well, yes, but, you know, <laughs> I've recently come to stirred. the awareness that, yeah, stirred, but, you know, some people do prefer it. Um, there is no wrong way to drink booze. You're
1: right. S- <laughs> stick 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 to the ideology, Mo. Don't look down your nose or something. I prefer mine stirred.
0: Yes. <laughs> I'll also finish off on a question that's very similar because I already know what uh, our producer, Wool is going to say right now. What are your thoughts on red wine and Coke? Calimucho. Calimucho. Sip.
1: Por oh que no? <laughs> por que no los dos? <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> hey, when in Rome. When in Rome, right? It is when a fantastic Rome. thing the for the right occasion.
1: Came up with this <laughs> <laughs> so you. I was once told a story about a winemaker called Angelo Gaia. Yeah. And um, incredible wines from Barbaresco <laughs> and other places now, Tuscany. Uh, and he went on a tour to somewhere and um, he was showing his wines and it was quite a young wine-consuming market. Yeah. And uh, yeah, he was showing some of his top wines and they're around a, a, a table and um, some of the people started adding coke to these <laughs> wines that were super expensive. And do you know what Angelo Guy did?
0: What did he do?
1: He got the Coke, he put it in his wine glass, he drank the fucking wine.
0: Yeah. We get asked this all the time for things like, but there's this stigmatization coming from a whiskey background about whiskey and Coke. If you come into my bar and you want a whiskey and Coke, you're going to leave having the best fucking whiskey and Coke you've ever had.
1: Exactly. It can be done well. It can be done badly.
0: Um, but anyway... Thank you so much for joining me. That was actually a lot of fun. I learned so much today.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, Thank you for your uh, champagne uh, uh, advice. Uh, I'm going to try that.
0: Yeah, please do. Um, And um, let me know how you go with it. Definitely. Definitely. Cheers. Thank you so much again for joining me. Oh, we
1: better. Oh, cheers. Cheers. So good to be here. Happy New Year.
0: Happy New Year. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Spirited Discussions. I hope you had as much fun as I have and have been able to take away something you didn't know. Don't forget to like, subscribe and share with your friends. And please join me next time on Spirited Discussions.